I had a really had a really strange experience this week, and I've experienced it a number of times before, but never like it was experienced this week. I said uh, goodbye for now to 22 of my closest friends. These friends have been a major part of my life and your life for almost uh, six and a half years. It's actually six years and eight months. And they've showed up almost every week for that span of time. Some of them are from this continent, some from other continents, some from this century, some from centuries past. And as rude as it may sound, they've been sitting squarely on the top of my desk for almost seven years now. And if you hadn't figured it out yet, I'm obviously referring to the commentaries and other resources that I've regularly been consulting as we've been wrestling with the text of the book of Hebrews. And they have been good friends. And Lord willing, it's not a goodbye, but it's a see you later. And uh, we'll, we'll pick them up again. But yesterday afternoon, when the sermon manuscript got finished, and they never are finished, um, they went back to their resting place on my shelf. And as I put them away, there was that strange sensation. And it was similar to the way I felt when I left for college. Like people who I'd seen every day and hung out with and knew nothing different. They're just part of life. And now all of a sudden we're going off to new territory and a new normal. And we're venturing on to things that God would have for us. But this is, as the Lord would have it, our final sermon from the book of Hebrews. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll have one more message from Hebrews and the Holy Spirit will be the only one speaking as we read a good chunk of the book together to cap off the series. But I invite you today to the final passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. Hebrews 13, it's the last little paragraph there, beginning in verse 22. I invite you to hear the word of the living God. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Father, as we consider this text, we ask that the Holy Spirit would illumine the eye of our mind and warm the affections of our heart that we would rightly understand and rightly respond to what you would have to say to us today. We do indeed ask that you would save souls and change lives. And we ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Our sermon title is, Bear With This Brief Word of Exhortation. And if I were feeling a little bit more Puritan-esque on the day that we developed that sermon title, it would have been something like this. Brothers and sisters, bought by the blood of the Mediator, the Lord Jesus, whose priestly work on your behalf has guaranteed the forgiveness of your sins and will bring you safely into the everlasting abode of God, I urge you to bear with this brief meditation. 
built upon the Old Testament Scriptures concerning the glories and Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that wouldn't fit on the little guide, so we get uh, bear with this brief word of exhortation. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews, which takes me at a conversational pace that I'm like I'm speaking with now, takes me about an hour and five minutes to read out loud from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 13, verse 25. The whole thing, according to this text, is one sermon. And it's one sermon, as that longer title I was playing around with suggests, it's one sermon about someone. About the glories of Christ Jesus and about the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. So we only have one point in today's sermon, but I'll go ahead and warn you, there might be a few sub-points. The one point is the title of the message. Bear with this brief word of exhortation. Each part of that should be considered carefully, and we'll do our best, Lord helping us to consider it prayerfully. Bear with this brief word of exhortation. The first thing that I want to draw out from these verses, verse 22 to 25, is what I've mentioned. The book of Hebrews is one sermon. Let your eyes fall on verse 22. Word. That's singular. Not words. Bear with this brief word of exhortation. The word word is singular and the word exhortation is literally sermon. And the literal meaning of the word briefly is briefly. It is a brief word, singular, of sermon, of preaching. That's what Hebrews is. So Hebrews tells us that the entire letter is actually not a letter at all. It's a manuscript of a sermon. And according to the Spirit-inspired author, it is a brief sermon. Now I don't know if your quantification and his quantification are the same, but I take it all to mean that the book of Hebrews is probably an average type sermon in a New Testament church. Meaning, if you were to show up in Corinth or Ephesus or Colossae or Rome, if you were to show up in Antioch or Jerusalem or Philippi or Thessalonica, and you were to be there on the Lord's day, you would have heard a radically Christ-exalting, unwaveringly biblically rooted, unapologetically aiming at faithfulness in your life to the Lord Jesus Christ Monday through Sunday about an hour long. That's what I take that phrase to mean. The New Testament letters, as you know, were meant to be read not in bits and pieces and not as potpourri, kind of daily uh, lucky dip, let your finger land wherever it lands, but they were meant to be read in order in one sitting. And I highly recommend to you that practice. While it's immensely important to meditate phrase by phrase and verse by verse and digest prayerfully the words of God, it is also immensely, massively beneficial to digest the message of entire books at a time. And that's why our final sermon in our Hebrews series next Sunday will be exactly how we began almost seven years ago with a recitation and reading of almost the entire book. That's what next Sunday's sermon and service will be, Lord willing. So first, sub-point under bear with this brief word of exhortation is the book of Hebrews is one sermon. Read it like that. Out loud. 
with nobody else around so you can play with your voice fluctuation and really get into it. You'll benefit immensely. The second thing I want to draw out under our point is that Hebrews is a radically Christ-exalting sermon. This is New Testament preaching. This is what biblical preaching is. It is a radically Christ-exalting sermon. Maybe some of you know how our series began seven years ago, or maybe I should say why it began. I believe that we have explained publicly a number of times, but I can't remember if I told you out loud or if I played it over in my brain a few times. But the elders had been massively helped by Isaac, Isaac Ambrose's 700-page work called Looking Unto Jesus. It goes from eternity past to eternity future and dividing out every epoch in biblical order. It shows us the glories in the Gospel of Christ. Well, a couple of years prior to the series in Hebrews beginning, we developed and preached through a short series of sermons, eight or nine parts, that I believe God was pleased to use to shape the life of this church right in front of our eyes. And that little series was called Toward a Christ-Centered Theology of the Bible. So we tried to squeeze Isaac Ambrose's 700 pages down into eight or nine sermons. And then the elders were having our heart lit a fire by help from this brother especially, Ambrose. And we were burdened to expand upon and unfold in, in more great detail from every epoch of redemptive history the beauty of the Redeemer. And so we discussed and prayed, and this is how our elder meetings work. Maybe you'll be uh, even more underwhelmed now. But we think and we pray and we talk and we discuss and we bat back and forth and... As we did that, we thought, yes, we should start in Genesis and end in Revelation, and we should show in more great detail the great glories of the Redeemer. We were looking at Octavius Winslow's book by that title, The Glory of the Redeemer. So many others that are helpful in that category. But instead, the Lord was so gracious to us and showed us that He already wrote that sermon. It's called Hebrews. So the elders said, that's what Hebrews does. It takes the Old Testament and unfolds the majesty of the Redeemer and we get to look at Him through God's lens. So the elders recommended to the church that I be given an eight-week sabbatical. That was back in the summer of 2009. And for eight weeks in a row, I just delved into the book of Hebrews. I read it out loud once every morning, out loud once every evening, and during the day, I read a bunch of commentaries. And then our series began. That's how we got here. But the sub-point is this. Hebrews is a radically Christ-exalting sermon. There's a philosophy of preaching in our day that says you ought to preach to the lowest common denominator so as to not go over anybody's head. There's not one verse of Scripture anywhere in all the Bible that's not above everybody's head. We're barely touching the hem of the garment on anything that we understand. And Hebrews is so radically Christ-exalting. Do you see in this text, Hebrews is one sermon, and I'm saying to you now, one radically Christ-exalting sermon. This is what I mean. In chapter 1, there are 34 unique exaltations of Jesus. Not one of them overlap the other. Entirely. And the chapter is only 14 verses long. 
And two of the verses contain no descriptions of Jesus. So I'm telling you, in 12 verses, there's 34 descriptions of the Savior. For example, in chapter 1, verse 2, He's the definitive voice of God. He is, later in the chapter, the heir and maker of all things. Who radiates God's glory and represents God's nature exactly. Who upholds all things by His rhema, His powerful Word. Who also purified our sins as we just sang. Who is seated at the right hand of the heaven's majesty and is better than all the angels combined. Whose name is more excellent than all theirs put together because He is, chapter 1, verse 5, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, worshipped by every single angel and all of them cumulatively all the time. Who occupies heaven's throne because He's God and King and rules with righteousness. In fact, He rules with righteousness, chapter 1 tells us, because He loves righteousness. And conversely, He hates sin with equal vehemence. He is, chapter 1 tells us, a worshiper of God. He is anointed by God, the happiest of all. He is, chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord who exists forever, who created the earth and the heavens to boot. He is immutable, the one who will consummate the end of the ages, folding up the cosmos like a piece of laundry. He is eternal, enthroned at God's right hand, propping His feet up on His enemies as a footstool forever. That's the first 14 verses of the book. In chapter 2, He's the one to whom all things have been subjected who for a while was made a little lower than angels so that on our account He could suffer death. As a result, God crowned Him in His obedient self-sacrifice with glory and honor through His resurrection. He worships God right here, right now, in this little inner city community center in downtown Memphis in the presence of His people. He took on flesh and blood, chapter 2 tells us, in order to make propitiation for our sins. He helps only one select group of people, that is, the descendants of Abraham. He has suffered and been tempted just like you have, and therefore He's able to come to the rescue, the aid of those who are tempted. That's just the first two chapters. Time would fail us if we looked at all the descriptions of the Lord Jesus in every chapter. In fact, that's what we've been doing for the last seven years. In chapter 3, He's the Son of God who's unremittingly faithful over God's house, whose house we are. Chapter 4, we see Him, think about this, tempted, really tempted, in all things just as we are yet without sin, now reigning as high priest forever who bids us by His own righteousness to come boldly before the throne of God's grace. Chapter 5, we see that same Jesus weeping and wailing loudly on the eve of His crucifixion through His death becoming, quote, the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey Him. Chapter 6, we behold Him as the anchor of our souls lodged deep behind the veil of heaven in the presence chamber of God. Chapter 7, He is the true and greater Melchizedek who's able to save us forever for a reason. Because He ever lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 7 shows us to Him in five different angles. He is holy, innocent, undefiled, 
separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Chapter 8, He's the one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 9, His blood cleanses us all the way down to our conscience. He now, right now, right now, sits in front of the face of God for us until He appears again for those who eagerly wait for Him. Chapter 10, by His one offering of Himself, He perfected for all time those who are sanctified by His blood and reigns as our great high priest over the house of God. Chapter 11, He's the object and enabling power of the faith of every Old Testament saint. In chapter 12, He's the one upon whom we fix our eyes. Indeed, the one who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the final chapter 13, we look unto Jesus as the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who suffered outside the gate to sanctify us through His own blood. The one whom God has raised from the dead as the great shepherd of our souls through whom we offer all our praises now and forevermore unto God. So when I say the book of Hebrews is one sermon, and number two, it is one Christ-exalting sermon, what we mean is Hebrews is one radically Christ-exalting sermon. But third, not only is it one sermon and radically Christ-exalting, it is true preaching. Now a lot of things pass for preaching today, and I'm sure I've laid a few eggs in my day. But real preaching is not preaching. Real preaching is 2 Timothy 4. Preach the Word. Hebrews is a Bible-saturated sermon. The author's not making stuff up as he goes. He's reliably reporting what he found. He's simply the mailman delivering the news of what God has said. It's one thing to preach. but It's another thing altogether to preach the Word. Those same 14 verses in the first chapter, if you were to let your finger fall on eight of them, you would find 13 quotations from the Old Testament squeezed down into eight verses. In chapter 2, the whole argument is built on Psalm 8. Chapter 3 depends entirely on Psalm 95. Chapter 4 rests on the life and ministry of King David and the work of Joshua bringing Israel into the Promised Land. Chapter 5 is built in every phrase on Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Chapter 6 rests its argument of the stiffest warning in the entire New Testament on Genesis 3.18. Chapter 7 depends on three verses in Genesis 14. Chapter 8 on Jeremiah 31, which is the new covenant promise. So the author thought he should quote it in its entirety. In chapter 9, we get the details of the Old Testament tabernacle, but not made up as it goes exactly from Exodus 25. Chapter 10 unfolds to us one of the most sacred moments that we've ever seen concerning Christ's incarnation. As He, during His earthly life and ministry, meditated, I believe, before His public ministry began at age 30, meditating on Psalm chapter 40, where He learned and understood the will of God for His life. Chapter 11 is rightly nicknamed the Hall of Faith. And it deals with the entire Old Testament. And the final chapter, 13, cites Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Psalms 
to explain that God Himself is our best portion. One sermon, radically Christ-exalting, totally Bible-saturated. But fourth, the book of Hebrews is also aiming at something. Not information transfer. The sermon of Hebrews is aiming at life-changing application. Many of you have heard seven years worth of sermons. I wonder how many of us have looked unto Jesus and been changed. The sermon, I'm saying, is aiming at life-changing application. I get that right out of verse 22. This word of exhortation. I said earlier the word means sermon, but it's a particular kind of sermon. There's different kinds of preaching. Just like there's different genres in Scripture. We get Old Testament narrative. We get poetry in the Psalms. There's this apocalyptic kind of end time literature in Daniel and in Revelation. We get Gospel. We get New Testament letters that are very propositional, epistle-like. There's different genres of Scripture and there's different types of preaching. This sermon has an aim. Exhortation. That means, verse 22, this word of exhortation means that the author is not aiming at information transfer. He is not trying to impress you with how much he knows about Jesus. He's aiming not at information transfer, but at life transformation. I don't know many things, but I know this for sure. You will become like what you behold. I know that for sure. Whatever you love most, you will talk about the most. Whatever you cherish most, you will gravitate toward the most. I know this for sure. You will become like what you behold. Hope and pray that we're not the same people we were six and a half years ago. I do believe, because I've seen it with my own eyes, that looking unto Jesus has changed us. We're not as green in the stem as we were then. See, the will of God, biblically, is not a secret. The will of God is that the people of God be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And this mean, the means by which that transformation into the image of the Son of God happens is by climbing our lives inside the chrysalis of the Word of God, the cocoon of the Word of God, to behold the beauty of the Son of God until our lives share His likeness. If you look at Jesus, you will be conformed with greater and greater degree into His image. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. But that's also the entire book of Hebrews. For these many years, we've been looking, and if you have looked with us, then you have been changed. If you've got information transfer, you're the same as you were before we began. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, in its opening verses, for indeed we have had good news preached to us. I quote, I quote exactly. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, Old Testament Israel. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There's a difference between hearing and hearing. What the author calls word of exhortation means he wants them to do something with what they hear. And we're talking about a lot of stuff that men can't measure. He's not telling you to act more Christian or to be a moralistic uh, reformer. But when God 
looks upon the life of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is gazing on Christ, not themselves, and gazing on Christ biblically, and God starts running the analytics and spitting out the receipt of what's happening in those lives, His measuring stick is not like ours. Our congregation, numerically, looks about the same, if not smaller, than when we began. Is that any indication of God's blessing or curse on us? Dear ones, when the Lord looks upon those who look upon Christ, I believe things like this have been happening for the last seven years. Preaching the Gospel to yourself when nobody else is watching is on the rise by, maybe God would say, 34% over six years ago. Maybe 27 of the teenagers in this room were converted over the last seven years as you've said under Gospel preaching from Hebrews. Perhaps 74% of forgiveness is up in the body as compared to six years ago. Maybe not forsaking our assembling together is up 48%, or stirring each other up to love and good deeds is up by 51%, or encouraging one another day after day. I'm getting all these phrases right out of the book of Hebrews. Encouraging one another day after day is up 44%. And faithfulness in the midst of persecution and ridicule is up 62%. And maybe looking unto Jesus is up 87%. That's the kind of change we're talking about. This word of exhortation. Oh, for a fresh revival in our day. But I'm not talking about revival the way a lot of other people talk about revival. I'm talking about a fresh revival in our day of Christ-centered preaching that results in Christ-centered living. Not only is it a brief word of application, exhortation, let's not overlook the fact that it is brief. Now some of you on a less than cool day in downtown Memphis may not think this sermon's brief, but Hebrews is brief. I've already mentioned that it takes me about an hour and five minutes to read it out loud at a conversational pace. You could probably do it quicker than that. But he does say in verse 22, for I have written to you briefly. Was it the Apostle Paul who said sermonettes make Christianettes? I can't remember who that was. Obviously it wasn't Paul. But if you attribute it to somebody who sounds important, maybe it was Spurgeon, right? Then all of a sudden we'll think, oh yeah, that's, that's really profound. Sermonettes make Christianettes. That's true. John MacArthur says hard preaching makes soft people. Soft preaching makes hard people. Hebrews is a hard sermon. A lot of warning. A lot of in your face. A lot of no, you are not a Christian if you will not treasure Jesus above all. A lot of He's more glorious than you've ever dared to imagine. Keep looking at Him. Brief sermon. When on one of the trips to India, I finished preaching in a very hot village outside of a Hindu temple in the open air with a few hundred gathered to listen. When I finished the about hour-long sermon, including the translation, the people that were toward the front said, just a little more, brother. So when we were there for that extended time in 2012 with the family, in three months I preached over 300 times and it was like the more I tried to give away, God kept giving and I hope and pray that He bless, blesses that ministry even to this day and beyond. But as I sought to give away all that I had and God kept giving me more than I thought I could retain, 
it was a very glorious experience, but no matter how much I gave away, the people always wanted more. I don't know how many times I showed up at a random kid's birthday party and walking into the door across the threshold, somebody would say something to me like this, Brother, could you speak for some 45 minutes or an hour? When? Right now. Okay. <laughs> and every time I would finish, just about, the people would say, just a little more, please. One time we went for three hours and they kept saying a little more and I thought, oh man, the poor people who aren't asking for any more, maybe we should call it off for today. Hebrews is a brief sermon. If you can't handle one hour long Christ-exalting sermons rooted in God's Word, then Hebrews is not for you. Hebrews is for you if you love the Savior that it hands to us. But if you don't like sermons like that, then you got a lot bigger problems than not liking long sermons. And if you think my sermons are long, you should hang out with Paul in Acts chapter 20 when Eutychus falls out a window, or the people who came to visit Paul when he was under house arrest in Acts 28, or Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8 when he read the Scriptures all day long and the people stood up to listen. It's a brief sermon. But next, Hebrews not only... One sermon, Christ-exalting, rooted in the Scripture, aiming at application that is very brief. But it's also written to a persecuted people who know persecuted people. I pray that you'll perk up now. Verse 23. Let your eyes fall on that phrase. Take note that our brother Timothy has been released. With whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Our brother Timothy. Yep, that Timothy. Same guy who traveled with the Apostle Paul, who pastored the church at Ephesus, apparently, at the time of the writing of this letter, had recently been released from prison. You see, in God's providence, God saw fit to have Timothy outed from jail just like He had Peter released and Paul in miraculous ways on other occasions. The point is this, Hebrews is a sermon that is written to a persecuted people and the author knows that, but guess what he doesn't ever say? I'm so, so, so sorry for all that hard stuff you're going through. I'm so sorry that your guy's situation is extenuating and so different than all the other Christians in all the world. No, he doesn't. He knows that their hearts are heavy and he knows that they're concerned about our brother Timothy. And he's eager to let them know that God has seen fit to have him released from prison. He was in prison for his faith. Just like so many others in the New Testament were. They were a persecuted people. Christianity wasn't fluffy and you know, pick your favorite flavor and consumeristic church searches. Jesus Himself was imprisoned. The night before He was crucified, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 were imprisoned for spreading the news throughout the whole city about the risen Jesus. Paul and Silas in Acts 16 were thrown into jail. Why? Because God intended to hunt down the jailer through their worship and witness. Four of the letters that are in your New Testament were written from a prison cell. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That's why Hebrews 13, verse 3, commands us Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. 
That's a big part of the reason why every other weekend a group of men from this church are preaching at Luxor Prison through the book of Ephesians right now and we covet your prayers that God would work in power there and we believe that He is. But release from prison like Timothy experienced in Hebrews 13.23 is not always God's will for those who are persecuted for their faith and the recipients of the book of Hebrews knew that. Sometimes God fully intends for His prophets to die in jail like Micaiah in 1 Kings 18. Or if you've read Hebrews 11 recently, maybe you remember verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting their release, which implies if they would have said the right magic phrase, they would have gotten let out of jail. But these, quote, were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. James, the brother of John, in Acts 12.2, was put to death in jail. That's the aquarium that these people are swimming in who received this letter. According to opendoorusa.org, 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month. 322. That's 11 a day. Or while you and I have been in this room, one of them has perished for their faith. Take note that our brother Timothy has been released. Can you imagine how the congregation might have soared into rapturous applause and thanks to God when they finally got to that phrase? Perhaps they were listening with bated breath on the edge of their seats as their pastor who read the entire letter out loud in one sitting in their hearing, when he finally got to that line, the whole place would have erupted with volcanic joy and thankfulness to God in answer to their prayers. We tend to skip over little phrases like that. Our brother Timothy has been released because we don't know anybody in jail for their faith. Yet. But that's our fault. Because we have access to the internet. We could do a quick search. I typed in various little keywords in preparation for this sermon and instantly found gobs of information about the persecuted church. Today, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in prison for their faith. Right now, in Iran, in Turkmenistan, Eritrea, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Sudan. We could go on and on and on. You look at persecution.com, a Voice of the Martyrs website, and you'll find plenty of material that can fill up your prayer life. In the book, The Insanity of God, which I recommend to anyone who wants to know what it's like to live for Christ in a persecuted place, which is on its way here, that book says that our Chinese brothers and sisters consider being imprisoned for your faith the credentialing process for pastoral ministry. Like going to seminary. Oh, you haven't been to jail yet for being a Christian? Then you're not yet ready to be a pastor. Try finding that on a Western pastor's resume, yours truly included. A great number of our brothers and sisters are persecuted and imprisoned for their faith. You ask them if we're living in the end times yet or if the great tribulation has come. They'll say, where have you been? We've been living in that for a long time. The book of Hebrews sobers us. The author means to tell us that Christianity is not about our fuzzy little feelings. As much as it's about living faithfully in the face of fierce fires of persecution. He says to them in chapter 12, verse 3, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, have you? Translation? Interpretation? You hadn't died yet for the faith, have you? Then keep going. 
That's the message of Hebrews. It's written to a persecuted people. P.T. O'Brien in his commentary on Hebrews says, the magnificent Christology of Hebrews serves as an exhortatory aim to powerfully motivate believers to remain faithful and steadfast in the face of persecution. Next, the sermon of Hebrews is not only written to a persecuted people, but I've said this sentence, I think, almost every sermon for seven years. It's written to a local church. I do think I've said that sentence almost every sermon. This is written to a local church. Hebrews does not want anyone to suppose that they are faithfully living for Jesus if they are not deeply invested in the life of a Jesus-exalting, Gospel-telling church. Verse 24, Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Leaders where? Leaders is plural. Greet your plurality of pastors. Same thing in verse 17 in the same chapter. Same thing in verse 8. Same chapter. Your leaders. Your plurality of pastors. That's why our sermon series coming this summer in the card that is in your chair is about life in a Jesus-treasuring church. We looked at Acts 2. We counted them up. And there are a number of fruits that are born out of just giving your life to a Jesus-treasuring church. You can try to produce the fruit all day long. That's not, not what God commands us to do. Plant your life in a Jesus-treasuring church. He'll see to it that the fruit is born. It's John 15. Abide in Christ as a branch in the vine and the fruit will be born through you. A summary of that sermon series for this summer, we emailed to the church family on Friday, says this, our summer sermon series... July through August, will focus on seven fruits that grow in abundance through those whose lives are firmly planted in a Jesus-treasuring church. Plant yourself in the body and pray for lasting fruit. That's what's happening here. Greet your leaders. Greet all the saints. If yours is not a life that's firmly planted, deeply planted, in a Jesus-treasuring church, then the soil of your so-called Christian living lacks the nutrient that is necessary to produce abundant fruit that glorifies our God. You don't get the nutrients anywhere else. That's John 15 and other texts. One more practical word about verse 24. Greet your leaders and all the saints. Does that obviously not imply that you know them and they know you? If you don't have access to your pastor, even if you listen to his podcast all the time, he's not your pastor. Social media can't do what verse 24 is calling for. Greet all the saints. Like Presumably you know them, right? And you have fellowship with them. And you can go talk to them and have FaceTime with them. Let's let the Word of God land on us. Three little letters at a time. A-L-L. All your leaders. All the saints. Is that space filler? Or is that inspired writ? You've got to know the members of the body and able to be able to obey that command. Do you know the members of your own body, as 1 Corinthians describes your church. If you don't, then maybe this little closing remark, greet leaders. Greet all the saints. Maybe you just need to think biblically about this word greet. Acts 16.3, greet Prisca and Aquila. 
Acts 16.5, greet the church that is in their house. Acts 16.6-23, 31 people's names in Acts 16 listed by name that Paul says, greet this person and that person and greet them on my behalf and greet this person. He knows them. The point is this, as Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together, life together is the call of Christ. Our greeting will never need to be renewed on that glorious day for we will all live together as one body without division in close communion with our God and with one another. Two more ideas I want to lay before you as we bring this whole series and this sermon to a close. Not only does Hebrews demonstrate that it's written to a local church in which the people are deeply invested and then all the fruits are rightly born, but it also touches, I love this, in this text on local church partnerships. Newsflash. We are not God's one great gift to planet earth. If He flicks Grace Church off the map, His kingdom will do just fine. He does not need us. All the New Testament churches, as far as I can tell, don't exist anymore. And this one is not indispensable to God's plan. So before we fall into this empire mentality, which every Christian is tempted and prone to do, we need to understand Christ's kingdom. How He's at work broadly. And we see it right here in the text. And our point is this. Hebrews touches on local church partnerships. It is written to a local church. I've already tried to demonstrate that. And that church is probably in Italy and probably more specifically in Rome. And that's right in verse 24. Those from Italy greet you. Well, you just got to imagine the direction. It's either written from Italy to people over there, so therefore those from Italy greet you. Or there's some Italians over here where the author is, and he's saying those from Italy are greeting you. Most people think it's the latter, that the church is in Italy and probably in Rome. But the point is this, there are believers here, and there are believers there. There are local churches that are sprinkling the earth, peppering the earth with the glory of God. And as a man who stands before you today who's 25% Italiano, it makes me pretty happy that God's still in the business of saving Italians. I do come from full stock of Berettis and Angelettis and Asaros and the like. And I'm thankful that God's work is not limited to one ethnicity, one geographic location. He's not only working in Italy. He's working from here to there and from there to here. In our prayer earlier today, we prayed for the Habiat people. David voiced that prayer. They're in Oman. There's a hundred, as far as we know, in that entire people group. Zero percent of them professing Christians. And we pray boldly during our prayer time together because Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, dot, 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 for all the nations. So we pray for the nations. And we've also read the end of the book. We know that the Jesus who died and rose again bought with His blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The Gospel will get to that people. He will have the rewards of His sufferings. And right here in this verse, we see a beautiful picture of the capital C church. The Habiats of Oman, the Memphians right here in Tennessee, the Italians who were there in Rome, the Catholic church, the universal church. At Grace Church, we believe that the Bible is so clear 
that God is doing three primary things in the last days. If you were to have a blank piece of paper and say, what are God's big three? What's He up to? What are the things He most wants to accomplish? I don't know what would be on your list, but we believe the Bible teaches very clearly, the book of Ephesians most explicitly, that the three things God is up to in this order are the glorification of His name, the good of His people, and the Gospel to the world. His glory, His people's good, and His Gospel getting to the ends of the earth. And if you ask the Bible, how is God doing all three of those things? The answer would be singular. Through the agency of the local church. He's reaping glory, Ephesians 3.21, for Himself. He's doing good, edifying and equipping for ministry. All the saints, Ephesians 2 and 4. He's getting the Gospel to the world, Ephesians 1 and 6. All three of those big three, biblically speaking, are being accomplished primarily through the local church. Italy, Ephesus, Philippi, Jerusalem, Memphis, elsewhere. So when verse 24 says, those from Italy greet you, we're seeing the great purposes of God in the last days unfold before our eyes. The fact that you and I are now sitting in this room today is proof positive that God is still marching forward in His mighty mission to glorify His name, do good for His people, and get the Gospel to the ends of the earth. And finally, Hebrews is designed, that last little verse, to deliver God's grace to those who hear and heed its message. You could memorize verse 25 right now. Grace be with you all. Period. Hebrews 13.25 Grace be with you all. Hebrews' message is designed for that. To deliver to you like a freight train the grace of God. I know that many of you like me have been greatly impacted by the preaching and teaching ministry of Dr. John MacArthur. And maybe you know the title of his resource ministry is called Grace to You which is different than grace be with you. He came up with that title, grace to you, because that phrase so often opens letters of the New Testament. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, several others. Grace to you, verse 1. But so many of those same letters end, like Hebrews, with this phrase, grace be with you. And Dr. MacArthur points out that so many of the New Testament letters close with that statement, grace be with you, I believe he gets it right when he says that the grace of God comes to us, verse 1, through the Word of God about the Son of God, and grace remains with us so long as we hear and heed what God has said. Grace to us, grace with us, all rooted in the Word of God. Do you want the grace of God to be with you? Hebrews 13.25 Live your life in the book. We've held off on sending this month's to Grace with Love, not because we forgot about it. It's a love letter to our church members, for those of you who don't know what that means. To Grace with Love hadn't been sent out yet this month. It's coming to you next week, in your chair, in conjunction with our after meeting, which will be after the service next Sunday, mark your calendar, where we'll lay out a vision for phase two at Greenlaw. But I want to read to you a little snippet from that love letter. Lord willing, Grace Church will be increasingly faithful to our mission to grow together in biblical maturity. In that mission, no one has arrived. The Bible is a bottomless well of goodness ready and waiting for explorers to know its author. That's why our corporate life is rooted in the book. Not only are we resolved to preach the Word, 
But we're also constrained to sing it, pray it, read it, learn it, and teach it to others too. What else do we have? Where else will we go? That's why I'm very excited about phase two for Grace Church at Greenlaw, dot, dot, dot. There's your commercial. Come next week and you'll find out why. But as we prepare to close this sermon, let those words of verse 25 freshly land on your ears and your heart. Grace, grace be with you. If you haven't noticed yet, the name of this church is Grace Church. We weren't trying to be uh, trendy or cool. and We didn't want to name it after a street because we didn't even uh, know which one we would be meeting on. And we'd probably move from that one sooner or later. Why grace? The reason is, Ephesians 1 tells us that at the end of the ages, when everything's said and done, and you stand face to face with the Redeemer, you will still then be praising the glory of His grace. Grace be with you. He's talking about Gospel grace. This little line in verse 25 is not, how can I figure out how to close this letter? It's how to close the letter. It's not separated from the rest of the book. It's impregnated with the message of the book. That grace be with you. That Gospel grace be with you. That Word of God grace be with you. Very much like the opening of the words of the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Grace remains with us according to verse 25 when chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 13 verse 24 remain with us. So what's the application? There are three parts. At the third part, a slide that may look familiar will appear on the screen. Number one, submerge your life. Submerge your life. Submerge your life in biblically faithful, Christ-exalting, Gospel-telling preaching. I do not know why God has chosen the medium of preaching. In our day and age, is this not strange? All the techno-gadgets that exist, is this not strange? That in the 21st century, one man with a monologue is standing in front of a closed-mouthed group of people? But this is a picture of the Gospel. We sit with our mouth closed, doing nothing, and God hunts us down in His mercy. 1 Corinthians 1, by the foolishness of the Word preached, God has chosen to save those who believe. So submerge your life in that. Give your soul to biblically faithful, Christ-exalting, Gospel-telling preaching. Number two, submerge your life in the local church. I don't want to be known. I'm not a people person. I don't like crowds. With all due respect, I don't care. Give your life to the local church because one day there will be one church and it will be local and you will want to be part of that one. Such submersion in a church that's trying, limping along, no doubt about it, to be faithful to do what we see is God's choice means for the good of His people. Third and finally, there's really only one application because if we get the root right, the fruit will grow. Here's the final application for our seven-year series. Look unto Jesus. That's it. That's been the application every Sunday. And when we move on from the book of Hebrews, it'll be the application every Sunday after that. 
This is the Christian life. There is only one application. It's the same one we try to give every Sunday and in every interpersonal conversation with one another. It's the main point of the book of Hebrews. It's the main point of the Bible. And it's the title of our sermon series for good reason from day one. And so I've tried to have a little uh, uh, fitting way. How do we end the series? And here's my best shot. I wrote a poem to the book of Hebrews lifting out its phrases. And uh, here we go. Kind of roses are red, violets are blue. I was noticing when we sang that every other line rhymed in every song we sang. In this little gibberish, every couplet rhymes and therefore, here you go. To be enshrined forever in some audio record. There we go. This is it. Before we looked, we thought we saw. But blinded eyes and Babel's wall blocked from view God's only Son who by His cross our victory won. Our Jesus, who e'er agreed and ne'er for sin's demand we grieve. His name we used but meant another. Enslaved to sin, no love for brother. Then we looked at holy writ Beheld thy Son, torn and rent, flesh-wrapped deity on a cross, absorbed God's wrath and all its dross. Can I, the man of sin, into thy holy of holies ascend? Shall guilty men of heinous crimes boldly rush across thy lines? Oh, stabbing, piercing is thy word, thy Spirit-given sword we heard. Sins remembered no more. Covenant love, God's choicest store. Beaming brightly, Jesus, Thy glory, exactly like Thee. That's Hebrews' story. One like us, yet worlds created just like Thee. Thus justice sated. Jesus, how precious Thou art. To man, the visible, invisible God. To God, exact holiness of heart. Jesus, how precious Thou art. Angels all adore Him ever. Footstooled enemies released never. His beauty, Hebrews' verses speak. The God-man fills the mercy seat. Apostle, Savior, Son of Man, interceding now, redemption's plan. Thy scalpel hath written on our hearts the law of Moses, our God, Thou art. Pardon me, the law of love, our God, Thou art. Like they by faith who with Thee walked, we here and now Thy Spirit stalks. Looking unto Jesus, the Gospel's goal, to see the Savior and see Him whole. Scripture alone, not flighty dreams, but He who is the King of kings, the Lord of life, the great High Priest, who gave Himself for the sheep. Laboring now before Thy throne, pleading His name or His own. Looking, looking, Till at last, Thy majesty shall before us pass. Open our eyes that we like Thee may behold this Jesus for eternity. Lord willing, next Sunday, we've already asked over 30 church members to take part in next week's service. Instead of me quoting the whole book like we did at the beginning, we'll have two microphones set up and one after the other, we'll read a little bit of Hebrews carrying the main themes of the book from chapter 1 all the way to the end. And then we'll sing about what we read. For example, 
come boldly to the throne of grace right after we read Hebrews 4 about boldly approaching the throne of grace. So we'll read and we'll sing and we'll pray and then we'll read and we'll sing and we'll pray. But every time a word is spoken, the Holy Spirit preaching to us the glories of Christ from the book of Hebrews. So now I'm about to say the final phrase in our series. And until we meet again, here's the exhortation. Look unto Jesus. Father, we ask that because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we pray, God, that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us, laying aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles us. Oh God, we ask that You would enable us by Your Holy Spirit to fix our eyes on Jesus. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, until we see You face to face, cause our eyes to behold You by Your grace. We pray for Your glory. In Jesus' name.